One of the greatest challenges we have as educators is finding ways to make learning relevant for our students. In today's episode, Dr. Bill Robertson introduces us to action science and the ways he is making his teaching relevant and creating opportunities for the most active kind of learning I can imagine. Produced by Innovate Learning, Maximizing Human Potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. This is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to increase our personal productivity approaches so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. I'm so happy to be welcoming today Dr. Bill Robertson. He's a associate professor in the teacher education department in the College of Education, and he also serves as the co-chair of the teacher education department at the University of Texas at El Paso. He leads the Division of Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics Education, and he has expertise in the area of science education, curriculum development, and technology integration. He also develops researches and teaches materials related to problem-based learning and action science. And there's a lot more to his bio, but I'm going to welcome him to the show now so that we can hear about one story I think will be best to get straight from him. Bill, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me on, Bonnie. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. The story that I think people would love to hear directly from you is about your Fulbright. Can you talk a little bit about how you actually got that experience and what it was like for you? Absolutely. Well, in 2008, I, in the fall, I ended up going on a Fulbright to um, based in Santiago, Chile. And uh, the background in it is kind of interesting. I had a a friend, uh, Nora Bynum, who was on a Fulbright, and she got back from it in Mexico and said, I, you should really think about going on a Fulbright, Bill. And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not the kind of person that people pick to go on Fulbrights. And she said, you should really rethink it because you're exactly the kind of person who should go. And, and she's, she was a good friend and she motivated me, so I decided to apply for it. In that, in that same time, I'd had an experience where we had had a, a number of visitors here at the University of Texas at El Paso who came from a university in Santiago de Chile. And as things would happen, they ended up staying in my house. And, mm. um, and so we had lots of conversations and they were all in Spanish. They were, you know, very immersive. But the thing I found was that we had a lot of things in, in common concerning science education you know, the constructivist methodology and, and just our approach for uh, working with uh, pre-service and in-service teachers. So when that happened, I also had a, a university that I, I could target. And so I ended up going there in uh, the summer of 2008 and stayed through December of uh, through that same year. So I went in the winter of, in Chile and came back in, in December. One of the interesting things about that time was um, I'm not a native Spanish speaker by any means. I have taken plenty of classes. I now have a degree in Spanish, but you know, when it's one thing to be sort of academic about it or to practice uh, in certain places, but to suddenly be considered a, you know, an academic in another country was was very challenging because not only did you have to know sort of the language of the society, you also had to know the language of 
the profession. And I was placed in a department of physics. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I'm not a, a, I'm a science educator, not a physicist. And so often what would happen was I would get a lot of terms uh, incorrect. And so, for instance, I remember them one time, I would say something like, you know, we were talking about a certain concept, like the center of gravity. And I would say, you know, este es el centro de gravidad. And the, someone in the audience, uh, a fellow professor would say, no, 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 Bill, no es centro de gravidad, es el punto de equilibrio. <laughs> and so they would con- correct me. And then the, get the vibe was, is who is this North American? He doesn't really even know his stuff, you know. But, but because I was struggling a bit with the technical language. Uh, over time, that got a lot better. But I think one of the great things I learned about from that is, you know, is how people who are learning a second language may know exactly what they're talking about and, and might not be able to express it. And, and working and living here on the border of uh, the U.S. And, and Mexico, and I live in El Paso, Texas, and Juarez is on the other side, and we have 80% Mexican-American population, very bilingual, bicultural, and I work with a lot of English language learners. So in some ways, it helped me to really internalize what, uh, what English language learners would, would work through. One of the things I thought was so fun when I looked at your LinkedIn profile, too, I, I know that the way that they order things on LinkedIn is forced to be chronological. And you actually right. placed, you indicate that I actually got this degree in 2009, the Spanish language and literature. But one of the right. things I really enjoy that that shows about you is your own willingness to be a lifelong learner, because that can't have been easy either. I mean, going and actually living in the culture, speaking the language within an academic institution, you described the challenge of that, but even just going back to school after you'd already earned your doctorate. Yeah, no, I, pr- I appreciate that because I, you know, it was funny because I just wanted to take some classes in Spanish and try to improve. And when I tried to take some here at, at UTEP, they said, yeah, you're welcome to take classes and you, you need to, you know, you need to enroll. And I said, well, I'm a professor here, you know, I just want to take some undergraduate classes. And they said, great, you just need to enroll. And so I had to apply for admission <laughs> to the university. I, I was accepted. And That's great. <laughs> I, was, I was classified a senior. Mm. And, um, and then, you know, I started on a, an academic program and, and ended up taking, you know, 10 classes and conferred a, a, a Bachelor of Arts degree in, in Spanish. But the, it, I think for me, too, it was a challenge for, for learning. But the other thing is we have a lot of non-traditional students here at, in, in El Paso, and many come from, you know, whether they return from the military or they've you know, had a family and they come back to school. So even being an older person in class, I wasn't necessarily looked at as, as different. And, um, and, and in many ways, I became sort of the undercover professor. And I learned a lot about students and how, how students live here. I'm not from El Paso, so it really taught me a lot about the lives of our students and, you know, how they balance work and family and, you know, school and, and everything else. Ironically, one of the things that was funny is I would have students, classmates who knew me as a Spanish student, and uh, they would show up in, a, in an education class and they would say, oh, cool, you're in this class, too, you know, and they'd start talking <laughs> to me and then everybody would come in and I'd say, excuse me, and I'd stand up and then I would have to teach and they actually didn't know I was a professor. So all my professors in, in Spanish knew I was because I self-identified, but for the students, they didn't. So it was a good immersive experience. It was super challenging. But again, it was, a, you know, the way I think about education, you know, as a lifelong learner, more education equals more opportunities. And, and with that, I was able to actually go to Chile and, 
live and, and, and enjoy an educational experience there too. Both of those experiences just sound like they've given you so much empathy as a professor. And I, I know for myself, I can't ever get enough of that. I, I was yearn for the ability to put on those lenses of what is it like for our students today. So tell me about action science, because many of us who are engaged in, in this conversation might have heard of action sports before. So what is action science? I had been in action sports, and I started to try to combine things that were sort of in the realm of action sports and science, and, and we started to use this term of, of action science. And, and specifically, I started with the, the, the sports of skateboarding and BMX. Um, I've been a skateboarder since I was 13 years old. I'm getting ready to have – I'll be celebrating my 40th year as a skateboarder this year, and it's something I've enjoyed doing. It's something I've competed at. It's something I did as an amateur, a pro, and also as uh, in doing demonstrations. And, and it, it's just a lot of fun. It's something I enjoy. And same with, I had a lot of friends who did BMX. But, you know, early on, I, I realized there was a lot of physics and, and concepts in, in these sports that could be expressed and that were also very engaging and motivating, not only for the students, but also for teachers, because teachers would start to see some of the efforts we were doing and they would say, oh, this is going to help me so much to reach these, this specific group of students. And the, and the type of student they were identifying was probably someone a lot like me in, in school who was maybe, you know, not super interested in school all the time, a little creative and, and you know, was looking for a new way to connect. And, and I was trying to reach that, um, that marginalized student uh, in many ways. It started more as a, a live action piece that I did. You know, I do demonstrations in school, and then we started to do videos. We produced a, a series called Dr. Skateboard's Action Science, which focused on forces, motion, Newton's laws of motion, and simple machines, and used that in schools all, all around El Paso. And then, you know, since then, uh, we've been really working on a lot of, I'd say, more big, big time or maybe arena shows, informal science and festivals but also using a lot more video as a way of trying to deliver primary content in science or in STEM to, to learners in, in sort of a video format because we find that the video is very portable, very consumable, and people will watch it over and over, unlike a textbook where they really won't read it at all. And I'm going to encourage people who are listening to definitely go to the show notes for this episode. They'll be at Teaching in Higher Ed dot com slash 85 because you've got to see Dr. Skateboard on the skateboard. <laughs> you've got, got to see just I was completely riveted when I went to go start watching them just how you are able to bring in these concepts but keep the attention like nobody's business just through the video and the power of of, of action science. That's exactly what it is. <laughs> well, you have written a book on action science. That's the main title of the book, but your subtitle is Relevant Teaching and Active Learning. So let's tackle those two terms just one at a time. How do you see relevance as important in our teaching? So often teachers want to find a way to connect with students, and, and in many ways they're also looking to, to manage their classroom throughout the day. And a lot of times I hear from, from students or even from, you know, anyone is they always ask the question, you know, what's the point or why are we doing this? And I think that's something that's on the, you know, the forefront of, of every learner, whether you're in a school or you're at a, a meeting or anything like that. It's this relevance piece. How can I connect this to my own experience? And so 
a couple of things I think are really important about, you know, working with relevant teaching. You know, one is you have to pay attention to who your audience is, who your learner is. And, and you also have to find ways to integrate the interests of your learner into your curriculum. And, and typically we go the other way. We try to force our curriculum into our learners. And, uh, and so for me, you know, relevant teaching is about choice. It's about, it's more student-centered. It's, it's teacher-facilitated. And it also draws on the, the strengths of the, of the students. So whether that be in subject matter, you know, if you've got artists, you've got guitar players, you've got dancers, you've got sports enthusiasts, you've got people who are good at language, and it also draws on their maybe their gifts uh, in the way they want to express themselves. So not always asking for a paper, but maybe giving them an option of producing a documentary or a, a PowerPoint that they can, you know, narrate and uh, you know doing some type of alternative assessment uh, that can be evaluated by a rubric. Um, the, the idea also, I think, leads to the fact that uh, teachers are always looking for things they can use, and and a big part of what I find in my approach is especially at the university, is often people are, are comfortable delivering theory, but they're not always comfortable remembering that we have to turn it into practice. And, and a big part of what we've done here at UTEP is, you know, we found ourselves in the schools, we're part of professional development networks, and that means that we have to not only bring the theory, but the theory into practice. And so I think that's very important that, that students and, and even teachers, whether they're in a workshop or in a classroom need to come away with something that they can use in the classroom. And that, and that was something I learned early on, you know, when I was working uh, at another job as a program coordinator, teachers would tell me, hey, this is great. Don't give me all the theory. Give me something I can use. So I pretty much developed, you know, tried to develop things that are pragmatic, practical, relevant, real world based that, that teachers can use in the classroom themselves. With active learning, that is one of those phrases that has a whole bunch of different meanings. And if we were to go start to break that one down, we'd, we'd be introduced to a lot of different authors. But in your case, when you talk about active learning, you really, really, really mean the active and active learning. Can you talk a little bit about your own definition and perspective on what active learning is all about? Active learning for me, you know, really means engaging the student holistically. For me, one of the things is that you have to have a framework from which to operate. And so, like in the book or even in my teaching of any, um, any classroom, you know, I, I found myself in sort of a constructivist-based methodology. And, and what this does is it's, it starts with, it has a, a 5E or a, a framework that you follow, and it's engage, explore, explain, elaborate, and evaluate. And in a nutshell, what you try to do is you try to, hook students or connect to them to engage them, to get them motivated uh, to be involved. And then in the exploration, you're actually turning them loose to allow them to um, have time to interact, whether that be discussing things amongst themselves, researching things, you know, on the computer or in the classroom, um, maybe going outside to collect some data. It's a very open-ended part, but it's, a, it's very, you know, they're very hands-on and minds-on during that time. And very little direct instruction is happening during these two events. And then as you move into sort of the explain, typically students are trying to make sense of what they do. And then during the elaborate phase, you have an opportunity to bring in strong content to increase the breadth and depth of their knowledge. And then, of course, you evaluate students and whether that be in a test or 
or in some product that they produce, you know, that you evaluate with a rubric, that's a way of doing that. But I think, you know, the main thing to me is, you know, we're very comfortable doing something in class that we call an activity. And we understand often that we've got to cover specific content. But I think teachers, you know, need to have greater depth and variety in the methodologies they use, because I believe an activity consists of content and method. So one of the things I try to do is demonstrate a lot of different methods, you know, whether it's Socratic questioning, jigsawing, scaffolding, using cooperative groups, um, think pair share. So trying to keep the, the strategies different and, and also taking the time to deconstruct them to show like, why did I use this strategy? So for me, it's about keeping people, um, keeping people engaged, but also keeping them sort of on their toes. And, um, and I think that if you create an environment that has sort of people, you know, a little bit of uncertainty, but also they trust you to, that you're going in the right direction and it seems fun, uh, they're willing to try different things with you. So the, you know, using a sp- different methods for different content to achieve your goal is, is a big part of active learning. What do you see as some of the ways that you're able to build up that trust? Because I can that resonates with me so much where you are really asking your students to do something that's uncomfortable for them. I mean, learning should be uncomfortable for us, so we're probably not getting the full value out of it. So how what are some ways you build up that trust? So to, in order to build up the trust, the f- first thing I know is that, you know, what I need to do is I need to drive students or learners or anyone to an area of high risk and a high ambiguity. That's really where learning occurs in my opinion. So, you know, high risk, they've got to try something that, you know, they've never done and high ambiguity, they don't know what's going to come out. And that can be a very vulnerable spot for you as an individual, um, you know, and especially within a classroom setting. But that's where real learning occurs. Uh, the type of learning I'm talking about, too, is sort of the upper part of Bloom's taxonomy, the, you know, the critical thinking, the analysis, synthesis, uh, evaluation, and creativity of, of, of your thinking and, and working with material. But first off, you have to develop a safe environment. You have to give students an opportunity to be willing to go to those places. They have to say, you know, I, I basically trust this guy to, you know, to, to lead me to the place he says he's going to do it. So a lot of that is uh, is setting a tone in the classroom. Um, you know, I I really do think that, you know, and even in meetings or whatever. I mean, I'm you know, it's very flat. I try to know that good good ideas can come from everyone. I also try to to let people know that their interests are important. So I take the time to actually get to know people. You know, I I you know talk to people before class or after class or. You know, we do a lot of stuff online, so I'll be reading things about that they post, and then I'll invoke those into the classroom. So I think that that helps uh, to do that. I never single out a single individual. I always kind of model, you know, talking to the group, and then when someone, you know, brings it forward, I'll, I'll bring them in. So I'm not one who's, who, you know, will identify a student and put them on the spot. I'll kind of go the other way. And I think that over time, they start to see, you know, you know, hey, he's, He's, he's breaking my interest in, he's really listening to me. And, um, you know, in, the, in that sense, I kind of help to create that, that safe environment. But the other part of my job is really to, to push them, to get them to kind of step out of their comfort zone and to kind of, if you will, coach them uh, through some of these places. So, so how I do that a lot is I'll, you know, we'll go through an experience and then I'll basically deconstruct it and tell them why I did certain things and, 
and what I did, and uh, and then I'll get some feedback from them, and and I integrate that feedback. So I think that's another part that they know their, you know, their voice is being heard. When Stephen Brookfield was on the show, pretty actually pretty early on, I'll put the a link to his episode in the show notes in case anybody wants to go back to listen who hasn't been listening for that long. One of the things he described was just how normal it is for students to get angry when we put them in areas of high risk and high ambiguity. And that's something that's always helpful for me to know that as an educator, my goal shouldn't always be to be having everyone be perfectly comfortable and therefore perfectly happy in a class that sometimes in you use the phrase push them and that (laughs) we don't like to be pushed but then you used the phrase as you were describing it I tell them why I did certain things so you're able to go back and look at the past and say this part where you felt uncomfortable and I was pushing you here's why I was doing that Mm -hmm. so I I don't know that was I, I hear I hear a couple of things from you. One is just a real place of empathy. And then a second thing that I'm hearing, though, is empathy enough to also not leave you right where you are. <laughs> empathy to recognize that I'm not really helping you if we don't achieve something new and something risky and something with ambiguity. Yeah, because for the most part, I think, you know, learners learn. And often people will complain, oh, this the students didn't really get it. And I, and I you know, I'm a firm believer that you know, the students in our classes or the people in our workshops or in our meetings are, are really smart, motivated people. And we just have to find a way to help them to to be able to use their gifts um, in what they're doing. And so a lot of times people see themselves as, as disconnected from their education. And, and so they kind of check out and they don't see that, that maybe the skills of what they're really good at can apply to something like education. This has been something I've you know, done a lot with skateboarders and, and others who, who often don't see them, you know, they see the world of skateboarding and the world of education as completely separate. And, you know, that I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to be a pro skateboarder, you know, so I need to drop out of school. And my attitude has always been, you know, you can be successful in both. In fact, I always tell people the things that made me successful in skateboarding, you know, persistence, dedication, tenacity, creativity, uh, setting goals, those types of things made me successful in education. And in fact, I was more successful in skateboarding as a young person than I ever was in education. But I learned to apply those principles, that, that way of working, to what I was doing in my education. And, uh, and that, that really helped. And that's been a big part of my, my mission, not only for skateboarders, but for just for learners, you know, that if they're really good at something and they can, in a sense, master something, they can probably master something else. So if they're really good at the violin, then they know how hard it is to get that good at it. And uh, maybe they can apply those same principles to their education or to something else they want to learn. Um, that to me is, is really where you're trying to, it's not so much push as it is to, to coach the learners, and then, but also to have you know, faith to try to inspire them so that they can use their gifts uh, to grow. Before we started recording, I told you a story about a scar that I have. And I'm just so sorry you have to hear the story again. <laughs> I, I would like to apologize in advance. <laughs> so I have a scar that I have from skateboarding right down Fire Mountain Drive, the street that I grew up on, and uh, right on my knees, because that's a great way to ride your skateboard is on your knees. Fell right onto one of those little 
curved cement borders that people used to put in the 1970s in their grass. And I mean, sorry for anyone listening, if you still have those borders in your grass, they probably still exist. At any rate, the scar actually has moved. It used to be right in the middle of my upper lip and it has just moved slightly off to the left as my body grew from childhood. And so here's my question to you. I will finally get to the point. What is a scar that you have from your teaching? Something that has maybe moved around, but you're still cognizant of a lesson that you learned from a failure in your own teaching. There's one that happened that I, that I use a lot and it's, it's, it's one that happened a number of years ago. Um, but it, it continues to, to resonate me with me. And, um, and I think also with the students I work with before I became a professor and, you know, even before other jobs, you know, I was a, a high school and a middle school teacher and, at first, I was a high school teacher, and I, I liked being a high school teacher because uh, one of the things you could do is you could be, you know, sarcastic with students, and it worked really well. They they would get your humor, and they were semi-adult, and, you know, you could have good conversations, and you could have fun. And uh, and then I moved to the middle school. I taught sixth grade, and I taught sixth grade science, and uh, I remember, you know, I'm kind of a of the generation of, like, you know, airplane and, you know, Caddyshack, you know, oh, yeah. kind of humor, and uh, yeah. and so I, a student came up to me and handed me in uh, an assignment, a little sixth grader, and I grabbed it and I said, "Oh, thank you very little," which is sort of a classic Chevy Chase line, you know, and and immediately he looked at me and he started to cry, mm-hmm. and um, and you know, at that point I realized, you know, I can't just wing this, you know, <laughs> and uh, and I had to really start to understand how learners learn and. And at a middle school level, people were all over the map. They were at different places, developmentally, uh, physically, uh, emotionally, intellectually. And I really had to start to become a student of my students. And I think that time at teaching in a middle school was when I really learned how to, to teach because, you know, what I didn't want to do was make people feel vulnerable or upset. You know, I wanted this to be a safe place. But I also knew that I needed to to change my ways and I needed to probably put a little more time into my craft because uh, a, a, a crying student in your class will take you a long way, especially if you feel like you caused that. So for me, that was a, a wound that I, I kind of learned early on and, um, and, you know, something that I think still resonates with me today because, you know, it's important to understand the learner, but it's also, like you said, to be empathetic but to be kind and caring along the way because, you know, really, you know, in education, you know, especially at the university, we're in the success business and we're trying to help people get to someplace they've already decided they want to go. So in many ways, um, that lesson was, was well learned early on in my teaching career. And it's something I think that I still keep close uh, even today. Do you have any good scar stories just about your own experience with action sports? <laughs> anything that you feel like sharing? Because mine was just the best scar story ever. But do you have anything you'd like to top my? Uh, you my know, I, I think your your story is good. Suffice it to say, uh, you know, I've I've had uh, plenty of injuries, and but but interestingly enough, I've you know a lot more of my injuries came in 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 other sports like high school wrestling or uh. football or other traditional sports uh, that I did early on and. You know, like I mentioned, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting ready to, to do my 40th year of skateboarding. I've had a cup, couple of injuries. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I moved from being sort of the, the young guy who would take all the chances to sort of the, the older guy in the helmet at the park. And, and I'm okay with that, you mm-hmm. know, because I've, I've enjoyed this for some time. But the one thing I know about with, with skateboarding, and I, I went skateboarding yesterday, is 
and I got a new scar from yesterday, is uh, skateboarders fall down. <laughs> and that's a big part of what you do. I mean, gravity really impacts you. And when you're skateboarding, you fall down. And But the other thing about that is you know as a skateboarder not only how to fall down, but how to get back up. And I think this is something that uh, also resonates with people in education because, you know, it's not so much that we try to have all this success. It's, you know, it's kind of overcoming the obstacles in our lives and, and maybe even our failures. And so that's one of the things I think skateboarders and people who do action sports can really relate to because to get to that spot where they have done something, they have had to fail a lot. And they've also had to take a little bit of a beating along the way. They fall down and they get up. And I think we use that a lot as a metaphor for success. But I do think that um, that's something that's very internalized to me. So to answer your question, you know, had some interesting scars, <laughs> of course. Got a new one yesterday, and I anticipate getting another one the next time I go skateboarding. Well, this is the time in the show that we do recommendations. And I'm so excited because somebody actually that listens to the show wrote in and I'm going to use her recommendation to me for the broader audience. This is from Pamela and she starts her email to me just saying, thanking me for the podcast. She's been teaching since 1973. And she says, quote, I'm not too old to learn new ideas. I'm just sorry I didn't find you sooner. And that was really kind of you to say, Pamela. And she wants to recommend the book Training in Motion by Mike Kuxala. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that right, but we'll have a link to it in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 85. And she says, this book emphasizes the importance of movement for learning and not just for regular exercise. It's backed by research. Kuxala also provides a number of very short, simple movement exercises that can be used in class. And this is something that I've experimented with for years now is just getting people up out of their seats, whether it's just going around to take sticky notes. I've written on my blog before about teaching with stickies. If you want to go look, check out those posts, I'll put them in the show notes too. But something really magnificent happens when we get out of our seats. And I, and I also have talked before on the podcast about getting students out of their seats when they're taking exams and doing a stretch break. And that really, students have said, helps them a lot with just if they have any kind of test anxiety, just to get a little bit of oxygen flowing and do those deep breaths and everything. So I, I'm really looking forward, Pamela, to checking out Training in Motion. Thanks so much for writing in with that recommendation. And I'm going to pass it over to you, Bill, for a couple of recommendations I know you want to make. The first is I'd like to bring out is a nonprofit called Skatistan. And Skatistan is a, a, you know, a nonprofit that uses skateboarding as a tool for empowerment. And it really has a large commitment to working with young women in Afghanistan, Cambodia, and South Africa. And the interesting thing about this group is, you know, they're, they're based in Berlin. They're uh, people from uh, Australia, the leaders originally from Australia. And they're putting themselves out there working with populations that many of us might overlook or maybe even be uh, fearful of. And, and they're trying to demonstrate effective ways to educate these kind of marginalized students in innovative and creative manners. So Skatistan is a, a, a great cause and I think also you know, a, a great effort that they're doing to, to focus on helping young women through skateboarding. The second thing I'd like to mention is Edutopia. And Edutopia was originally set up as sort of an arm of the George Lucas Foundation. And now with our new Star Wars movie out, hopefully people will also look at many of the uh, innovative educational pieces that came out of, of Edutopia. And, and it's really an educational portal, portal which is uh, dedicated to transforming K-12 education. 
I like it because, you know, it gives educators practical resources that you can use directly in your classroom for in terms of your instruction, your pedagogy, and then the content that you might use around, you know, fundamental educational topics. It also gives great video resources that you can use for, for teaching and learning. So, so Skatistan and Edutopia are my two resources. Oh, that sounds wonderful. I'm looking forward to Skatistan. I can't pronounce it. Skatistan? Skatistan, yeah. Skatistan yeah. was a really fun thing to go check out. I hope people will check that out in the show notes at teachinginhighered.com slash 85. Bill, what do you want to leave us with today about action science, about relevant teaching, about active learning before we close the episode? First off, I wanted to say thank you very much, Bonnie, for having me on the show. And I've enjoyed, you know, being a part of it, of course. But I also think that what you're putting together is a great service for all of us in education. And, uh, and um, you know, I'm honored and feel very blessed to be a part of this today. I think the, you know, the, one of the main things I, I think, you know, we need to kind of recount is that, you know, all of us are, are learning and all of us have something where we can teach and contribute. And, and I think a lot of times what I've tried to do is create environments where, where the learning is shared. And people always ask me, you know, you've been a teacher for a long time. Why do you teach? And I, and I constantly reply, it's because I like to learn. And, mm-hmm. and I think that having that sort of um, learning first kind of attitude as a teacher is something that most teachers share, and especially people who stay in the profession. I would like to see, you know, more people you know, spend longer in the profession. And, and you know, I, I would really like to see some of these methodologies that we've used, whether it be the constructivist methodology, or if you want to call it active learning, uh, making the, the curriculum relevant, practical, pragmatic, real-world based, giving students choice, uh, making things student-centered and teacher-facilitated. The right time for that is now. And I also think that it's also a great time to, to expand sort of our, our body of resources not just to include things, say, on the internet in the same way, but to to build new uh, new curriculum. There's great ways of doing that in video by building uh, apps, but also giving people sort of experiential opportunities. Uh, so, to me, these are the kinds of things I think we should think about as educators, and uh, that would hopefully help keep the, the the practice of teaching and the art of teaching at the forefront and and for a great future. Thanks so much for your willingness to come on the show and inspire us all in these ways and really challenge us to pushing us (laughs) to get to new places. And part of that, by the way, requires vulnerability. So just thanks for being a safe place for us to have this conversation. Absolutely. My pleasure, Bonnie. Thank you so much for having me on the show. A final word of thanks to Dr. Bill Robertson for investing your time today for being on the show, and especially to all of you who have been emailing me lately with ideas for the show, including the one we mentioned from Pamela, and I've got some other ones in the hopper too. It's just so much fun to hear from you, what you're getting out of the show, and also to challenge me to be pushing the envelope even further to what we might do with this podcast. So thanks so much for that. And for those of you who have yet to get in touch, please do so at teachinginhighered.com slash feedback, or you can touch base with me on Twitter at B-O-N-N-I 208, Bonnie, without an E, 208. I'd love to hear from you there. And just as always, I'd like to remind you, if you have yet to subscribe to the show notes for the episodes, you can get a weekly email in your inbox and not have to remember to go look up all the links. You can just go subscribe at teachinginhighered.com slash subscribe. 
And when you do that, you'll receive a free EdTech Essentials Guide with 19 tools that'll help you integrate educational technology into your teaching and productivity. Thanks again for listening, and I look forward to seeing you next time.